Good morning. It's 31 degrees in the Emerald City, and you're tuned to Locked on Ducks. This is your daily source for info, updates, and analysis on the Oregon Ducks. I'm your host, Jordan Long, and you can find me on Twitter at the Dustoff Guy. I do want to apologize for anybody that listened to the episode before about noon yesterday. I dropped it with about three minutes of silence at the tail end, and uh, after I fixed it, I republish the episode, so if you didn't get a chance to listen to it, uh, you ought to, because we definitely discussed some draft prospects and uh, and the new recruitment hire. Please subscribe or follow on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on, and be sure to follow the show on Twitter, at LockedOnDugs. You can always reach out to us with the hashtags AskLodPod, that's hashtag AskLodPod. Send us your questions and comments, and we'll talk about them on air. One of the best ways to support the show is to leave a 5 out of 5 stars on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't think I deserve 5 stars, go ahead and leave 5 out of 5 anyway. But tell me why in the reviews and we'll get it fixed. But for now, on to the action. Hey, basketball fans, I know what you've been waiting for. It's that time of the week where we get a pregame preview of what's on tonight at 6pm at the Desert Financial Arena. But before getting into specifics, we're going to do a sort of will-they-won't-they thing. Let's take a look at the Pac-12 top six, or as we might as well call it, the Pac-6. When it comes to the Pac-12, the top six teams are actually within one game of each other. Uh, One game out of first place, you might say. That's Oregon, Colorado, Arizona State, Arizona, UCLA, and Stanford. Arizona's got the hottest streak going with five wins in a row. 24th ranked Arizona... 18th ranked Colorado and number 14 Oregon are actually the only ones ranked in the AP Top 25. We're going to go ahead and start from worst to first. The USC Trojans have five games remaining in the year. Uh, Only Utah of their opponents isn't vying for first place. They do have to play Colorado too. USC has a historically good defense this year, actually holding their opponents to uh, just over 43% from two and uh, 28.5% from three. USC is one and three against the four remaining teams that are, you know, part of the Pac-6. If they lose, it's going to be due to poor offensive efficiency against the remaining teams. If they win, it's going to be on the backs of their defense, that's for sure. Next up, the UCLA Bruins, like USC, the remaining schedule isn't that easy. Uh, Utah is the only opponent who's not in the uh, Pac-6. Under first-year coach Mick Cronin, they've won seven of the last nine games. And recent wins even include a convincing win over Colorado in Colorado's own house and also beating Arizona on the road. They do still have a rivalry game to play on the road. Ken Palm's luck meter has UCLA losing the final five games. If they win first place, it's because they're streaky and just warming up. If they lose, it's because the momentum didn't hold out and they'll be exposed as the worst team on the list. Next up, the Arizona Wildcats. And speaking of those Ken Palm luck ratings, Arizona's pretty much the luckiest or pluckiest, depending on how you read the 
probabilities. Luckiest team on the list, ranked in the top 20 overall. Just a reminder that Kempom is... It's a measure of the deviation between a team's actual winning percentage and what that percentage would be based on its game-by-game -game efficiencies. It's essentially an indicator of who's winning more than their fair share of games that could go either way. Also, Arizona's ranked 24th in the nation for a reason, and it's not likely due to luck. They do have one of the easier remaining schedules with only USC, UCLA, and Oregon being the only Pac-12 top six teams the Wildcats have to play. They have six games left to play instead of just five. Four of those six are home games, and they're favored to win all of the final games. They're more favored to win their final games than Colorado, who's also supposed to win all their remaining games. If they win, it's because the projections and analytics have the Wildcats as the best team in the Pac-12, and those analytics would actually be true. The Arizona State Sun Devils, whom we play tonight, of their remaining schedule, uh, they have six games too. Three of those are against top six teams. Of those three games, the toughest one's going to be against Oregon tonight, even though they also have to play USC. They've won their last five games, so they're incredibly streaky. Hot got a lot of momentum going into the game tonight. Remy Martin, an elite guard, is averaging over 20 points on 48% shooting. He's pretty much clutch whenever it counts and someone to look out for. It's important to keep in mind that four out of those five wins came at five points or less. And if they win the Pac-12, it's because they do force a lot of turnovers and Martin's going to keep the streak alive. If they lose the top spot in the Pac-12, it's because they're sixth in the Pac-12 in offensive and defensive efficiency. And that point differential finally catches up to them. The Colorado Buffaloes are ranked number 18 in the AP Top 25. The Buffs only have five games left, two games against teams with winning records. Both of those, they're playing at home. They have the top 15 defense in the country, and three of the five games they have left are on the road, where they're currently 4-4 four and four in the conference. If they win the top spot, it's because they have the best offense in the Pac-12 with a rating of 108.2, Eclipsing Oregon's second place by three whole points. If they don't win, it's because they've struggled on the road this season and will continue to do so. From worst to first, we finish with the Oregon Ducks, who are ranked 14th in the top 25. They have five games left to play. ASU and Arizona are the only ones they have to play that are in the top six. And the next two games against Arizona State tonight and Arizona on Saturday are keys to winning this division. Pritchard's the best player in the Pac-12, and uh, frankly, among the best guards in the nation. He's a proven veteran who's really been a difference maker in, in any of the close games they've played, if not <laughs> many more of those games. The Ducks are the ninth best three-point shooting team in the country, and the toughest games they have left are both in Arizona on the road. Unfortunately, the Ducks' defense hasn't been able to step up when the offense is having a bad night. When the Ducks win the Pac-12, it's going to be because they continue to be dominant from the perimeter and they out-rebound their opponents. If the Ducks don't make that first spot, it's going to be because they go cold in the second half and their defense fails to compensate. We've got to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about tonight's matchup and especially why it's so important. Welcome back to Locked on Ducks. I'm Jordan Long. In case you missed it, we already talked about the situation in the Pac-12 of how the first six teams or the top six teams are all within one game of each other. 
And now we're going to preview tonight's game and get technical, to the best of my ability anyway, about why this road trip to Arizona is so important. For starters, it's important to remember that for the Ducks, defense travels, because that's exactly what they're going to need tonight. They've really missed the big men who can not only score in the middle, but really protect the rim. Francis Okoro came back and scoring those baby jumpers and sky hooks in last week's game actually was quite a bit of a difference maker, and, and his ability to follow up missed perimeter shots makes rebounding a real key to tonight's game. On whether Nefali Dante is going to be back in time to play, Coach said he's participating in practices and getting closer to playing. So, really, there's nothing definitive yet. Addison Patterson had three steals against the Buffaloes uh, last week, and that absolutely needs to continue. Takeaways is definitely going to be important, but the real key is capitalizing on them. In fact, if we look back to the Civil War game, we're going to see that the Ducks had eight steals, and OSU turned it over 12 times, but the Ducks just weren't able to capitalize, and those were the buckets they kept missing when they went cold in that second half. Speaking of second halves, this is going to have to be huge uh, tonight. Since Coach Altman took over, the Ducks are actually 59-26 and 26 in second half play, and no one has won more second half games in the last 10 years. As we know, if the shooting isn't solid, then the defense, uh, like we just talked about, has been unable to offset that, leading to some pretty stunning losses. The February 1st loss to Stanford is a prime example. The Ducks were only 32.8% from the field, out-rebounded by 12 in the second half, with the Cardinal getting 27 to the Ducks 15. And this included an 0-for-8 stretch, contributing to 42-24 second-half score. We already talked for a second about the Civil War game, but back on February 8th, Oregon had a 10-point lead early in the second half, and going into that half, they were 32-28. to The Beavers kept the Ducks to only six made shots in the last 17 minutes of that game. And while the Ducks shooting was cold... It was really poor defensive performance that cost them a loss to the second-worst team in the Pac-12. In fact, in the post-game press conference after Colorado, Coach Altman, following the uh, second-half comeback win over Colorado on the 13th, commented that it was really the energy of the crowd and the fact that they were able to finish in the paint and made m most of their free throws that really made a difference in that second half. When it comes to preparing for the big tournament, though, winning the Pac-12 is key. But there's also the issue of this new quadrant system. And for those of you who aren't familiar, I'm, I'm going to try to talk about it a bit. Though, to be honest, this stuff is really for math majors and not history majors. But I'll do my best. First, there was RPI. RPI was a, a ratings percentage index. And it was a fairly straightforward number that the NCAA had used. It included wins, losses, and a strength of schedule to determine a baseline ranking for every team. But the RPI was the old way. Now there's the NCAA Evaluation Tool, or NET as they're calling it. This is where it gets too complicated for me to adequately explain. Please feel free to clarify on Twitter, at LockedOnDucks. I also posted an article explaining quadrants on there. So the NET uses results, location, opponents, outcomes of games net efficiency, win percentage, and a cap scoring margin. and comes up with some number through voodoo system mathematics. I don't understand. But anyway, the new quadrant system adds a value where a team's opponent's net 
is weighed against whether that game was played at home, in a neutral site, or away. That value is adjusted throughout the season, placing any one team in any one of the quadrants. The league then uses this schematic to give weight to quadrant one wins over quadrant four wins. Arizona and Arizona State are both Q1 games. If Arizona remains strong for the rest of the season, presumably still losing to Oregon on Saturday, then these games are going to be pretty heavily weighted in determining the seeding for the tournament. In fact, per the Oregonians' James Kropea, no road trip for Oregon has featured two Q1 games since 2018. Because of the lower net ranking of the three games after the Arizona road trip, these next two games are going to determine Oregon's seeding. It's really that simple. This is why with wins over Colorado and Utah, I mean, they were huge for the Pac-12 standings, but didn't do much for seeding purposes because the losses changed the quadrants for those teams. In fact, the best thing going forward, besides winning, obviously, is to root for Oregon State, who's borderline Q2 to Q1. The major takeaway here is that these next two games are huge, and tonight's game against Arizona State is where it begins. Next, we're going to talk a little bit about Juwan Johnson. He's a big old wide receiver, 6 foot, 4 inches, and 231 pounds. He went to Glassboro High School in Glassboro, New Jersey. He was a four-star recruit and a top 200 prospect in the nation per ESPN Rivals and 24-7 Sports. He started his redshirt freshman at Penn State in 2015. In 2016, he was all-academic Big Ten. You know how I love the smart ones. He played in all 14 games that year, mostly on special teams. In 2017, he started in all 13 games as a sophomore. In 2017, he started in all 13 games as a sophomore. Actually under uh, offensive coordinator Joe Moorhead, uh, catching passes from Trace McSorley. He was 7th in the Big Ten in receptions and yards with 54 and 701. He was big time on first down conversions that year. In the Fiesta Bowl... He had six catches for 66 yards. As a junior at Penn State, he played in 10 games with seven starts. During his whole career at Penn State, he caught 81 total passes for 1,123 yards. After graduating with a degree in telecommunications in his junior year, because he redshirted that first year, and so essentially had two freshman years, he came to Oregon as a graduate transfer. Part of the reason he came to Oregon may have been due to the fact that Coach Cristobal was head of recruiting at Alabama when they tried to land Johnson out of high school. Juwan's veteran presence was pretty welcome in the 2019 class, and he brought not only some stability, but a lot of talent to the Ducks. You know, we talked about how, you know, the three years leading up to this season... There were three different coaches, and that's affected some of the draft recruits we've been talking about. And so bringing in someone like Juwan Johnson uh, was pretty helpful, providing additional reliable weapons for Justin Herbert. 
Comcast Sports Northwest, Bree Amaranthus, actually sat down with Juwan Johnson and talked to him about what it was like to have so many talented wide receivers catching passes from Justin Herbert and asked him if it was a good problem to have. It's a very good problem. I feel like there's a lot more depth in the, in the wide receiver room, and that creates not tension, but it definitely creates uh, competition in the room. And uh, that's something we need. You don't. The, the, the last thing you need is a receiver feeling comfortable in his position. So um, even me coming in, I'm uh, I'm going to say I put heat on a lot of players, but I definitely raise uh, the level of competition in the room because you know I came here to play, and that's literally what I want to do. And I expect everyone else to sort of elevate their game because um, I'm here or the freshmen are coming in or some old guys who are just improving their game. We all know that every big wide receiver is going to get compared to Megatron at some point, and Bree actually asked him about that too, so let's give that a listen. Start calling you Juanatron. How oh, do you wow. feel about that? <laughs> uh, I had that, that nickname in high school compared to Megatron on um, Calvin Johnson. You know, he's a great guy. Uh, my brother actually played with him, but... um. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it's whatever y'all want to roll with, that's what I'll roll with. You know, I, as, as long as I make the plays and as long as I do that, I'm all good with it. Oh, that's good stuff. Uh, this kid's a class act. Seems like a lot of fun. He's smart. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about combine results, some draft analysis, and even a pro comparison. Welcome back. This is Locked on Ducks, and I'm your host, Jordan Long. We've been talking about Juwan Johnson. He's making a charitable donation based on the number of bench press reps he does. He says that his goal is 14. And, you know, we would compare him to Calvin Johnson, but Calvin Johnson only ran a 40 time. He didn't do any bench press reps at his combine. So going elsewhere for comparisons, let's see. A.J. Brown uh, last year. A.J. Brown had 19. DK Metcalf, that monster, had 27. Hunter Renfro had 7. Debo Samuel had 15. And Darius Slayton had 11 reps on the bench press. During his one year at Oregon, Juwan had 30 receptions for 476 yards and 4 touchdowns, which included 5 receptions for 66 yards at the Rose Bowl. Draft analysts are pointing to his game against USC last year, where he single-handedly outscored USC with 3 touchdowns, 106 yards, and 7 catches. The good? You know, he, he uses his large frame to wall off defenders. He's difficult to tackle, and even though he's tall, he knows how to sink his hips for sharp cuts on routes to create space. He's good at getting defenders to bite on double moves, but there are a few not-so-good things. He's Even though he's kind of a veteran in the college ranks, he has a lot of untapped potential. They say he lacks confidence due to being one of multiple targets at Oregon and at Penn State, and because of that, he really fails to fully utilize his size and length. Not much of a burner. He's. It seems like his development has been stunted, and maybe there's a lot of untapped potential there. As far as the tale of the tape from the highlights that I watched, he has a really good catch radius. His length and aggression give him a big advantage over defenders. He has really sure hands, and he's a smart route runner. He seems to use that to get him open, and you know, put his hands where he where they need to be when he needs to be there. He's surprisingly athletic for his size, and athletic enough anyway to slip a bunch of tackles. And despite the knocks on his speed, I saw him outrunning defenders after getting a good cut or making them miss. I think a good comparison is, now just bear with me here, I think he's like a bigger version of Chris Godwin, who by the way had 19 bench press reps at his combine. 
if Juwan Johnson can surprise us with his speed, I'd be looking for a 4-4 speed and a 7-second 3-cone time right in that neighborhood to really make this comparison accurate. And we got the combine next week. We're going to be able to check on this. But in the draft network had Godwin pegged as a potential star because though he lacked what they call elite traits, he had, quote, a good combination of athleticism, route running, and high point ability. Now, I think these are all traits that Juwan Johnson has, and they're flying under the radar. And so far, he's gone relatively unnoticed. I think that once he learns to fully utilize these traits, he could be a star in this league. He just has to have some more development. Now, I know that's not what you want coming out of the first, second, or third round. In, in fact, uh, Chris Godwin waited till the third round to get drafted. But I sure hope that some NFL team out there is going to take a chance on this guy. We're going to revisit all our draft prospects and update their draft profiles after the combine. And I'm particularly excited to see what happens to Juwan Johnson's draft stock after the combine. All right, this has been Locked on Ducks. Thank you for joining me. You can find me on Twitter at the Dustoff Guy. You can follow the show on Twitter at Locked on Ducks. Be sure to click, rate, subscribe, follow, whole nine yards, all that good stuff. Don't forget to send in questions and comments to hashtags AskLodPod. That's hashtag AskLodPod. We'll be sure to read those comments and questions on air. We'll do a Mailbag Monday one of these days once we start getting some actual mail. I look forward to talking to you after the game. Have a great day and go Ducks!